Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to episode 3-263 of the Run Run Live podcast. How's everyone doing? I had a bit of a scare this week. I overdid it last weekend. I went out and ran 20 miles on the road in the teeth of a 90 plus degree day. Then I ran again on Saturday. Then I piled on on Tuesday with a hard track workout. And I woke up with a sore heel. And I was quite afraid that the old plantar fasciitis monster was back at work. I'm such an idiot that I was stressing over this. You know, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to miss my workout today and my lung run, and I'm not going to be able to do it. And finally I slapped myself and and realized that the best thing to do was to stop, stop the madness. So I reactivated my club membership and did my Thursday night interval workout instead of on the road because I had the sore heel, I did it in the pool as a pool run. If you don't remember what pool running means, go search my website, runrunlive.com, for aqua jogging. Since I hadn't pool run for like eight months and decided it would be a fantastic idea to start my first pool run with an intense interval workout, layers and layers of compulsive idiocy here. I got about 45 minutes into it before my feet and my calves started cramping up and they chased me out. And the heel was still sore on Friday, so I scuttled the long, long run I was going to do on Saturday and hit the gym hard Friday night as punishment for being weak. And I took Saturday off as a rest day, but when I woke up Sunday, the heel seemed to be workable. So Buddy and I went out and ran uh you know, a 12-ish mile trail run in the woods. Uh, the poor guy hasn't been running much, and he was pretty sore for a couple days, so i got to keep an eye on him. He's getting old. And as of right now, it seems as if I've avoided hurting myself, and the heel is back in the line. I did a medium speed workout on the treadmill Tuesday without any ill effects, so I think I'm okay. Uh, all in all, it really doesn't matter. I would have liked to have gotten one long over-mileage run in to guarantee that last 10K in my next marathon. But I've got some good consistency and quality into this cycle. With a week to go until the Bay of Fundy Marathon, the hay is in the barn, and I just need to get to the starting line. I think the hot run on Saturday really tweaked my heel. I didn't tape it for that run because I knew the tape would just sweat off and cause problems. And then with my pace getting pretty much destroyed by the heat, I ran very heavily and awkwardly. So I think that tweaked it. And I just have to remember to pay attention and not do anything stupid and I'll be fine. We have a great show for you today. I have an interesting chat about transformation and Zen with Brad Warner, who is actually a real to life zen master and i like to bring you these non-running but related conversations to help us think outside the box 
as we know from experience, thinking outside the box can help us find that third way. And in section one, I'll talk a little bit about change and the elasticity of human systems. And in section two, I'll talk about heat running. For I'll, Not your typical 10 things you need to know about running in the heat, but I'll go a lot deeper. I'll do a deeper dive into my experience last weekend running 20 miles in the teeth of it and what maybe we can learn from that. Quickly, though, I had a great question this past week, and someone asked me, how does doing these 1600s at 30 seconds or a minute faster than your goal marathon pace burn in your marathon pace? Aren't those two actually three different paces? And note, editor's note, for those of you late into this conversation, what we're talking about recently is a marathon training plan based on 1600 meter repeats at two speeds. The first I call tempo, and that's 30-ish seconds faster than your goal marathon pace. And the second I call speed, which is 60-ish seconds faster than your goal marathon pace. And I've discussed this in nauseating detail previously on the podcast and in my blog at www.runrunlib.com. You do have a good point there. And as we like to say, you've got a good point there, but if you wear a hat, no one will notice. Yuck, yuck. There are several reasons that you are doing these 1,600-meter repeats at the faster pace. And when you show up to the race, it translates very well to your official end-to-end marathon goal pace. Of the two 1600 training paces that I talk about, I think tempo is probably the more important and effective in burning in your pace. The speed pace helps, but it helps more with strength and fitness. And also, if you really need to get faster, if you need to move your needle for your finishing time, speed really helps with that. You may notice that many of the published intermediate marathon plans They don't even have any what I would call speed work, really fast stuff. They only have some version of tempo work. So when I say pace, I'm really referring to the whole package of pace, form, mechanics, and effort. When you run those 1600s on the track, you're isolating all of this. No hills or other external influences, so you can focus on the form and the pace execution. And by doing this repetitively, you become used to that pace that is made up of the form and the mechanics and the effort. And you can't do these 1600s at your tempo or speed pace without learning how to relax into the form and mechanics and effort. If you try to do them with crappy form, you won't be able to hold the pace. And that is what you're burning in, the ability to relax into that pace with machine-like efficiency. So you might think of it as sort of like training with weights on and then taking the weights off for the race. When you get to your goal marathon, because you have burned in the mechanics, they will carry over to your goal marathon pace and it'll feel easy. Your goal marathon pace will inherit the efficiencies that you burned in at tempo pace. And running them at the faster pace means that race pace should feel easy and restful. It also means that if you get sucked into running a couple of those early fast miles, you know, too fast in the beginning, your body has the capability and knows how to recover quickly when you back off to your race pace. And that 
is what I think about that. All I'm saying is try it for a training cycle and then tell me how racing feels. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Change and the elasticity of human systems. One of the most frustrating things that people encounter in their business lives, in their communities, and in their own lives is change. Let's talk about why change is so hard for humans and what you can do to overcome this challenge. One of the smartest things I have ever heard, and I don't remember where I first heard it, it might have been one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, but the statement was that humans and human systems are elastic. What does this mean, and why do we care? What it means is that you can't change a human system and expect it to stay changed. Human systems are elastic, like rubber bands, and they try to return to their previous state. Why you care is that most of the systems you deal with every day are human systems, and if you want to achieve lasting change or positive movement, you need to understand and be prepared for this elasticity. Another reason you care is that you are a human system. The elasticity of change applies to you and your efforts to change as well. I see elasticity in action at work all the time. It causes frustration. You've seen it too. Let's say there's a new process. Everyone follows the new process for a while, but over time they backslide and return to the old process. Managers are baffled. They reason that they explain the new process. How come people stopped using it? There are many factors, of course, but one of them is this elastic nature of humans and human systems. Sometimes your success will be determined by a new process being adopted, and then you need to know how to make it stick. In training or consulting, you'll hear people say they never internalized the new process. This means that they may have learned it, but they never mastered it, and they never owned it. It wasn't their process. It was someone else's process that they were being forced to learn, and as soon as they could, they got away from it and returned to their own process. To counteract this, you need to reinforce the process, the change. The best and simplest way to do this is through repetition. The more a new thing is practiced, the sooner and more deeply it will be adopted. My rule of thumb is that adults need to see something a minimum of three times before they will internalize it. I used to get frustrated by this. I'd think, are they stupid? I told them what to do, and they're not doing it. You need to have patience and persistence to your message. Assume you will have to say the same thing at least three times and work that into your change plans. We have discussed before how when you start with a stable system, it will resist change. When you introduce that change, you need to introduce it not only with a magnitude that will move the system, but also with a persistence that will keep the system moved. Systems have a inertia and don't like to change. If a company or a person has been doing something the same way for a long time, there will be big inertia and you will need to plan for big persistent change. What stymies many rookie change agents is that they assume if a change is for the better, 
people will logically embrace it. If that was true, no one would smoke or be fat. Human systems resist change, and many times they do so irrationally. It's not to say that being able to explain the benefits of change is a bad thing. Adult humans absolutely need to know why before they can start on the change path. But the why may not be enough. Tony Robbins made a fortune teaching people how to trick themselves into change by manipulating the reward and the punishment. Start with the rational why they should change. It is more profitable. You will be healthier. The rest of the company will be able to see the data, etc., etc. Then build your plan of persistence on top of that. Be prepared to hang in there and fight that elasticity with persistence. Some of the most effective change managers I know simply put a stake in the ground and use their resolve to outlast the forces of elasticity. They doggedly stick to their guns and calmly keep resolute to their message until the resistance runs out of energy. I'm not going to go into greater detail here, because the important point that I want to leave with is this. Human systems are elastic, and as soon as you understand this, a light should go off in your head. It'll explain many of the frustrating and irrational situations you find yourself in. If the change is important to you, you have to steel yourself to the conviction of persistence and placidly wait the recalcitrant opposition forces out. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. So anyhow, Brad, it's, it's, uh, you threw me into a bit of a time warp when you uh, responded to my email, I think a, a month or so after I said it. I had to re- go back and remember what I was thinking at the oh, time. Sorry. So, uh, But I know, you know you're a Zen master, so time is irrelevant, right? <laughs> well, so. it, uh, yeah. I, I, just, I have an email account that I often forget to uh, check, and I think you sent it there. So that's, that's the time warp. Yeah, exactly. So I read your book, which was the uh, Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, and Monster Movies. Yeah. And I liked it. I enjoyed it because, actually, I am a fan of all three things. As an observer, as, you know, as much of a, as a participant, I'm not really a Zen guy, but I'm interested in learning about these things. But the intersection for me is when I talk to people on this podcast, we talk about transformation. Okay. And typically it's through endurance athletics. And I thought to myself, this is very applicable because of you're all about the business of transformation through your craft or your art or your gift and transformation and transcending. So I thought there was an intersection there. Well, yeah, a lot lot of people have, uh, I got a friend who comes to my Zen classes who is a long-distance runner, and she finds a lot... In fact, two two of the people who come to my Zen classes are long-distance runners, and they find a lot of intersection between the Zen practice and the running. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I, wanted, that's why I thought it was applicable and I wanted to talk to you. Plus, I enjoyed the book. I thought there were some real, some real nuggets of insight and aha moments when I was reading it. But i I got to ask you before we start is, uh-huh. what is the thread that connects Zen punk rock, and monster movies? Well, I, I got interviewed for this guy's doing a movie about me, and uh, I got interviewed for that, of course, several times. 
And in one of the clips that ends up in the in the movie, I answer that question by saying, "Well, it's me." Which then then I thought, "Well, that sounds egotistical, you know." But it's it's sort of um, my interest in Zen and in punk rock uh, stems from the same place, which was that I was dissatisfied with the way most people were kind of uh, interpreting the world or processing their experience in the world, the sort of standard ways. And, and I got involved in punk because punk seemed to be more real. <clears throat> and punk was and is uh, is real, but it, it also had a tendency, this is, uh, this is the first sort of wave of American punk rock became kind of horrible. Um, after a few years, and and that's when I started looking into Zen, and I thought, well, this is this is taking the same attitude as punk rock, but going all the way with it. Like punk rock would stop at a certain point and say, okay, we've got the clothes, we've got the hair, we've got the political outlook, okay, we're done. Um, <clears throat> whereas uh, Zen would say, no, that you're not done at all. You've got a thousand more steps to go to find out who you truly are. So I think that's the connection. As far as the monster movies, I don't know. It was Japanese monster movies that I was into, so that got me into Japanese culture, uh, which which is, you know, Zen comes out of uh, Japan. Well, through India and China and into Japan. Yeah, exactly, because I can remember sitting as a teenager and watching those Godzilla movies and, the you know, the Mothra and even Ultraman was oh, on. Oh, Ultraman, huh? Yeah, I, I remember Ultraman. And I remember asking people, you guys remember Ultraman, and nobody ever remembers Ultraman. Yeah, it's a, it was a, it depends on where you were. It, it's kind of funny. It was very popular in certain markets, I think around where Cleveland, where I was, and San Francisco, for odd reasons, and Detroit. You know, there were, I've been finding little pockets of places where people knew it, but it wasn't, it wasn't nationally, uh, it wasn't syndicated nationally. It was syndicated very, uh, Spot spotily, <laughs> yeah. And punk rock is my go-to music when I'm out competing right now. Oh, cool. Um, sort of the later '90s stuff that's more ska than the original punk stuff. Yeah, that came in, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I was aware of that stuff. You know, by then, I don't know. By the, I got out of it in the uh, in the '80s, and then in the '90s, I started hearing some stuff that was like, oh, it's back, and it's you know, and it's good. Yeah, so, exactly. Kind of that's kind of nice. So I'm going to uh, again talk about transformation, right? Okay. And in your in your thoughts, you say that you know this transformation, no matter what it is, is a personal journey that only you can make. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the words personal journey don't occur in my stuff because I just kind of. I don't know. It doesn't sound like my language, but yeah, it is true. It's something, it can't come from somewhere else. You, that, that's one of the mistakes a lot of people make in Zen practices. They'll have a teacher and they'll say, oh, teacher, what is the answer? And it, it's kind of a cliche to have the, the Zen teacher swats them with their shoe or something like that. You know, and that, that, that occurs in the old Zen stories a lot. And, and people, people who misunderstand that will go, oh, Zen is cruel and heartless. But, uh, but actually that's what they call in, in Zen practice, grandmotherly mind, which is the, the, or grandmotherly kindness is the other phrase for it, which is to, to force somebody to do something for themselves because if you give 
is somebody the answer, your, your teacher can't give you the answer because it's, it's her or his answer, which is unique. At the same time, the, the unique answer each person comes to is has a universal quality. But even even say, having said that, uh, you can't you can't get it from somebody else. It, you you can't. If it was possible, that would be nice, and people could give it to other people and and uh, and be happy. But but it, it can't happen because that's the the nature of the thing precludes that. Right. So you can't go out and read a book and and get what you need. Although all of that can be parts of. I know you don't like the word journey, but parts of the process because you had an extensive process, a multi-year process before you ever got to a point where you could grapple with it and wrap your head around it. Well, sure, um, yeah. Yeah, you can't get it from books unless you buy my books. Uh, but <laughs> No, you I mean you can't. But the books books are actually uh, useful and valuable. I mean, certain books are more useful than others. But, <clears throat> but people need a kind of a conceptual or intellectual framework for things, which is why Dogen, who was the founder of, it, often Zen is presented as a, as a, there's a famous phrase that says a way beyond words and letters, which is true. <clears throat> and then people get confused or angry and frustrated. You'll find things, people ranting on the internet about if Zen is about not having words. Why are there so many words? And the fact is you need words to tell you it's beyond words because that's the way we human beings work. We need an intellectual framework for things before we can uh, move forward. So, so you do need the words, but ultimately it's the, the answer is not contained within the words that the words can only point you in the, in the direction. Right. So, so coaches help, but they can't do it for you. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a input help, but they can't do it for you. No, that, that's a great analogy. I'd never thought about that. You know, a coach in, in sports doesn't make the basket for you or whatever, you know, or hit the home run for you. But uh, but he, he it, it, to say that the coach is useless would, would also be wrong. Right. I know you talk about this a little bit, but the, the whole concept of Zen and Asian religions in general is just populated with a lot of folks who, they may be sincere, but they may be charlatans for one reason or another, you know? Right, um, yeah. and it's almost like uh, it becomes the latest business book. You, if I can figure out this Zen stuff, then I can really put put one over on the competition. Well, sure, know? I mean there's Zen, Zen everything. Yeah, I live in Los Angeles now. You wouldn't believe, you know, it's like every week or so I come across a new thing. You know, Zen hairstylist or the the uh, something I found on the sidewalk here was a a, a some kind of sex enhancement pill that was called Zen Power or something like that. <laughs> it's supposed to give you a massive erection or something. So, you, you know, you get, you get all that. You know, so once, once people see that there's a market, there's all kinds of people jumping in. I would say the vast majority of people who are working who, as teachers in the Zen field are, at the very least, sincere. And, and some of them are great, you know, absolutely wonderful people. But, but then you've got this whole other world where... You know, the ironic thing is the more popular the teacher of some sort of Eastern philosophy, the less likely it is that that teacher is any good, you know, and and maybe that goes for a lot of things. I mean, that's kind of my opinion about music and movies and things. You know, there there, there are definitely some popular music and popular movies that are that are also very good. 
But in general, you, you, you have this tendency of, in any sort of art or enterprise where there's a lowest common denominator sort of factor that comes into play, where people who are able to access the lowest common denominator become popular just because everybody can agree that explosions are fun to look at on a movie screen, you know. Example. Yeah, it's, and, it's funny. I was uh, I've got your book on Kindle right here in front of me, and it keeps going to the screensaver and trying to sell me Deepak Chopra books. So <laughs> there you go. Case in point. One of the things that that really impressed me was your when you were talking about people who are really good. You know, they're elite at what they do, whether they be artists or athletes. And through that process when they're in the zone, you know, and they're doing what they do really well, when they're practicing their, their craft or their art or their gift, they're able to almost transcend, even though outside of that, they may be totally broken and not, yeah. you know, not able to work at all. But when they're doing what they do, and that's what makes them so good, right? Is that, that yeah. yeah, I think that I think that's true. That whole sort of concept of in the zone, which has become sort of a cliche, is is also applicable to the to the Zen practice. And and yeah, my my teacher was my the the teacher who ordained me was interestingly enough a long distance runner in his youth. By the time I met him, he was in his late seventies, so he wasn't doing the long distance running anymore. But that was the the place where he initially started getting interested in Zen practice because he, you know, he's, he's Japanese, so Zen was more available to him than it might be to us. And he he saw a commonality there between what he was getting into when he was running and and this practice. So that was his way in. So he always talked about how athletes can approach it and me coming from being a musician i saw the same thing you 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 do it naturally if you're playing uh, music especially if you're playing in front of people because there's a a state you have to get into where you forget about what you're doing but you're still very intensely doing it which is you know kind of people think that might be a contradiction in terms but it's not really no uh, and 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 that's and that's what we're looking for in in zen practice but then again, you, you know, you're, the other thing is, is sometimes people get very good, you know, musicians especially are prone to that. They understand what it is to play music, and then once the, the show is over, you, you can get kind of lost. You don't know what's, what's going on anymore, and, and uh, turn to drugs and turn to all sorts of things to try to get back to that place that the music put you. Right. Part of the Zen practices is being able to more, I guess, in your cognitive sense, choosing to be in that place. Yeah, well, you, you work on it as a kind of lifestyle rather than as a, a practice that you do once and then leave behind and go do other things. You're, you're trying to kind of make an integrated life out of it, which which I suppose you could do with athletics or art or, and things like that, but it's it's more difficult. Zen is sort of this all around program that you can you can kind of fit into any activity. Exactly. Another thing that struck me is when you were talking about belief versus uh truth. Yeah. And you say, you know, belief is restricted but truth is boundless. Oh, do I say that? <laughs> yeah. You know, See, somebody, you, I got your book in front of me, so you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah somebody, somebody sent me a link recently to uh, a web page where somebody collected quotes from me and motivational quotes from Brad Warner. I think was the title of it, and I was like, "Wow, look at these! 
<laughs> Who said this stuff? It sounds good. Like, oh, I'm, this, I'm a really smart guy. Look at that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I kind of, I kind of write stuff and leave it behind. But yeah, and I'm, I'm, I have a new book uh, coming out in just a couple of weeks, which I should definitely plug, called "There Is No God and He Is Always With You," which is, which is more specifically about that uh, area of belief and truth. Yeah, because so, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead and, and talk about talk about that a little bit. What's the new book about and how's it build on on what you've done so far? Funny, when I go back and look at my earlier books, the seeds for the later books are always contained within them. I wrote a book right after Hardcore Zen called Sit Down and Shut Up, which has a chapter uh, about God and a lot of what's in this new book about God is is an expansion or maybe an in-depth exploration of what's in that chapter. So it <clears throat> it always builds on itself. And, you know, God is one of those interesting things because it tends to be a matter... Uh, when, when you intellectualize God and make God a matter of belief, you know, you must believe A, B, and C about God to, you know, to, to whatever, to qualify for heaven or whatever it is. I think that reduces it to something absurd and something that's really useless. So you have this kind of, um, especially these days, this atheist movement who are reacting against that. And, and I tend to agree with the atheist movement in almost every facet, except I think that they're wrong when they say there is no God. <laughs> you know, I think they're right about everything else. Uh, that they say, but then they they uh, they make that leap and go and and therefore there is no God. There is no God if God is defined as a guy up in the sky who watches our actions and and tallies them up and sends us to heaven or sends us to hell. And that that sort of that that's 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 ridiculous um, and it, it doesn't exist. But at the same time, I've gone through this meditation practice for you know, it's getting close to thirty years now. And I have come in contact with something, you know, it sounds crazy, it sounds like you're talking about a UFO sighting or something, but, but I've, I've come in contact with something through the practice that I can only call God, you know, which sounds like a, you know, I'm not God, which sounds like a big deal, but uh, we're all in contact with that, all of us, every moment of every day, we can't we can't disconnect from it. We think we can disconnect from it, and we disconnect from it in our thoughts, but we're not really disconnected from it. We're, we're always there. And, and so I wanted to try to write a sensible book about God, which is difficult. <laughs> that sounds like, sounds like a good meditation. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, and to tie it back to what I talk about, when you're out there doing your personal practice of whether it's meditation or in my case it's uh you know distance running mm-hmm. that's when you're coming closer to that contact you'll know, often say, hear people say you know i i was uh, i feel closer to god yeah 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 i think i think that can happen you know and it's, it's about your you know the the problem with god is the way it's it's it, is it the definition? If it's a definition or postulation or, you know, something you're imagining or supposing exists or supposing doesn't exist, then, then you're, you're already working in the wrong area. But it, it, it's something that, that people come in contact with and go, okay, this is, this is real. Uh, and our culture, the only word our culture has for it is God. Uh, 
but that word has been very much abused by by people who don't understand it. So so yeah, you you come in contact with something, and that something is very big and it's very intelligent and it's very intimately connected with you. Uh, my and 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 with everyone else. Yeah, and with everyone else, of course. My first Zen teacher used to say, "It's more you than you could be," <laughs> you know, which I I like um, because that was my experience of it as well. Was to say, "Okay, this." What I thought was me wasn't really me, and this thing is me, but it's also everyone, uh, which is, which is crazy. If you're not used to thinking that way, you, it, it just sounds like insanity, but once you become comfortable with it, you realize that there's this, the same animating force that, that, that moves you and makes you talk and walk and, eat a hamburger and whatever, uh, is, is common to everyone and everything in the universe, you know, which sounds huge, but, uh, but it's true and it's weird. Right. And one of the concepts I have a hard time wrapping around my head around is the concept that there is no me. Yeah. Well, that's, but, but I think it's really, there is a me and this me is part of yeah. this bigger thing. Yeah. The, the, I think I think the way I used to interpret that not, you know, in Buddhism it's called non-self. The way I used to interpret it is probably the way a lot of people interpret it, which is that something like there is a self and I have to get, I have to destroy it in order to, to come to terms with something bigger or something like that. But that's, that's not, that's not it at all. You, you, the, when we say there is no self, what we're saying is that you, there is something that exists and you call it yourself. You call it me and you, you assume all these attributes of it. But that's what you've done is you've constructed something in your head, which is exactly the same as when you construct any sort of concept in your head. You, 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 uh, you create for a con, you, for example, you create, if you have a, a husband or wife, you're gonna create a, a sort of concept about that person or a best friend or anybody. And you create a concept about that person in your mind. And then you discover through relationship that, that your concept about your significant other is wrong, is mistaken, is limited. But you, you, few of us ever notice that about ourselves. You know, we, we, um, we deliberately limit ourselves to this, this particular box of stuff. And, and if you stop limiting yourself to that box of stuff that you think is you, uh, you start to see that you, you were wrong. You know, that, that, that you were completely mistaken about your, yourself. That, that it's something else. And and and, right. and and to the extent where it's it, it is much more honest to say it doesn't exist, which right. scares people. They go, "Oh, what do you mean I don't exist?" Well, you you exist, but but you're not what you think you are. <laughs> right. So, um, assuming we piqued someone's interest here, what would be your uh, recommended first steps for them to uh, to explore this more? Well. Uh-huh. Besides reading your books, of course. Yeah, of course, reading my books and buying them. No, I mean, that, that's the cynical uh, uh, huckster in me. But I, I, think, um, I think there are a lot of resources. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't write my own books if I didn't think they were good resources, but there are a lot of other ones. Um, you know, there's a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is really good, uh, too, uh, that I always recommend to people. Um, 
Also, uh, practice, I think, is important. I, I've been kind of getting on this kick lately within the last few months where I've been telling people that I think meditation is uh, not... Pe- people think meditation is sort of an optional thing. They think, well, you know, a little bit of meditation might be good for me. Maybe I'll try it someday. And I, I think I think we're going to discover as a society, and it's going to take maybe a couple hundred years, that that meditation is actually necessary for human life. This is what I suspect, and I, I have no way to, to statistically prove this, but, but I feel very strongly that it's necessary in the same way that people 200 years ago didn't all brush their teeth. You know, and we look upon that and go, oh my God, can you believe those people 200 years ago, you know, didn't brush their teeth, whereas now we know that you should brush your teeth twice a day, every day. I think it's something akin to that. I think it's something we've neglected for a very long time, and we are starting to understand as a culture the the problems with neglecting this very necessary part of our lives. And I think eventually we'll get it together, and people will be meditating as just a matter of course. You know, and it may not be strictly zazen meditation in the in the form that 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 I do although I suspect that's I, I wouldn't be doing that style of meditation if I didn't think it was better but um but it'll be something and everybody will be doing it every day across cultures around the world um and looking back upon people like us going can you believe those people actually went about their day without meditating <laughs> interesting so okay, I'm going to head for the exit. What okay. um, what are what are the books and the links and how do people find you? Well, my blog is hardcorezen.info, so it's not .com because we lost that one. So hardcorezen.info, and that contains pretty much everything. And the the new book is called There Is No God and He Is Always With You. And I have four others: uh, Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up. Uh, Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, and Sex, Sin, and Zen, which I probably just went through that list way too fast. But, um, <laughs> but if you go to the blog, hardcorezen.info, there's all the, all the information on all of them is there. All right. Well, I truly appreciate your time this morning from yeah, Los thank Angeles. You. Thanks for and, uh, and the new book is released sometime this month? Uh, yeah, in June. June. Uh, it should be hitting the bookstores around uh, June 15th-ish. All right. It's timely then. Good. Thanks for the chat. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Hot, hot, hot. Anatomy of the hot long run. I ran 20 miles in the full heat of a New England summer day last weekend It was not my intention to do so, but circumstances led to this event, and I thought I'd walk you through it that you might profit from my folly. I have run thousands of miles in hot and cold, and I know what my body does. I know the symptoms, and I know the cause and effect. You may not. Let me walk you through the progression, the context, and the symptoms of what hot running can do to you with my narrative of my hot run. I had a 20-mile run scheduled, and I saw that the forecast was going to be 90-plus degrees, and I planned to get out early. The best defense for hot weather long runs is to avoid the heat by going out early. 
you have to plan to leave so you can finish before the heat of the day comes in. The challenge to this is that long runs are long. Just because you leave the house early when it's cooler doesn't mean it will be cooler three or four hours later when the sun comes up and you're coming home. So you have to be careful with that. I should have gotten up at 5 or 6 a.m. or even 7, but I rolled out of bed at 8 o'clock because of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I ate my breakfast, ate, drank my coffee. I knew it was going to be a hot day, and the night before I had put bottles of water in the refrigerator to get cold. So I got in the car and drove out onto my course and positioned these water bottles, these cold water bottles, approximately every five or six miles. And since it was already late morning on a Saturday, I really had trouble discreetly dropping these bottles. You know, people were out and about, and I couldn't just throw the bottles out the window. I had to find some hidden nook in the shade where they wouldn't be found and discarded. I've actually left bottles by the side of the road before with notes on them that say, marathon training, please don't throw away or please don't take. I figured four bottles, four water bottles, plus the one that I was starting out with in my hand would be enough. And it wasn't enough. I made a tactical mistake by using smaller 16-ounce bottles instead of the big 24-ounce bottles that I favor, uh, because that's what I had in the house. And that mistake would leave me short of water in the desert when I really needed it. If you think about it, that's eight less ounces over four bottles, or 24 ounces total over the course of the run that I didn't have. And I'm comfortable training into a bit of dehydration. And I thought I could bridge the gap between water water drops. I didn't really have the time or the opportunity to go out and buy special bottles for this run. And I figured I had the experience to get by. I also didn't take any Endurolites or nutrition with me, salt pills or, or gels. You may think this was some sort of mistake or oversight, but really it wasn't. 20 miles for me is three-ish hours at a slow pace. I've got plenty of fat to burn. <laughs> One of the purposes of a long run is to train your body to scrounge for that deep fuel when your nutrition gets scarce. So I went out on purpose without any nutrition. It's part of the training. If you train to be dependent on a constant stream of sugar intake, it makes you less flexible in your long races. My solution was I was starting with a bottle in my hand, a handheld, and in this I had a Gatorade mix. Each time I hit a drop, I figured I'd just pour the 16-ounce bottle into the, the fresh 16-ounce bottle into the 24-ounce Gatorade handheld that I had, and that would um, sort of dilute as I went. If you think about it, by the time I got to that first drop at five or six miles, I'm already almost an hour into my run, so that means I'd only be two-ish hours without nutrition on the back end. And two hours without taking nutrition on a slow run isn't really going to cause me any crisis. So I got back to the house after dropping off the bottles, and I tried to get ready. It was going to be hot, so I had to take time, make sure I lubed up all my pointy bits really well. That took some time. I had to make sure to go to the bathroom about a thousand times. That took some time. And in the end, I got caught. I got a late start, and I dithered around too much. I would I, I would have to run at the extreme hottest part of the day if I left when I was ready. So the final straw was 
I was trying to download some extra long podcasts for the run, and my MP3 player wasn't cooperating. I had to, like, reinstall drivers on the computer, and before I knew it, it was after 10 a.m., and I hadn't left the house yet. So doing the math on a slowish 20-mile run, this meant that I would be doing the last third in the hottest part of the day. And I'd be running through high noon with no shade, sun's directly overhead, and I wouldn't get back until after 1 o'clock. So the thought crossed my mind that it was too late now and I should bail out. Wait for the next day or maybe run in the evening. And I had one of those line-in-the-sand moments that you get in the middle of a training plan. You know, you're thinking to yourself, if I skip this long run just because it's going to be hard and hot and uncomfortable, you know, what message am I sending myself? What am I going to do in the middle of the marathon when it gets hard? And sometimes it's a good moment of truth, and sometimes it's just stubbornness. We poor mortals are ill-equipped to divine the difference in the moment of decision. We are, it seems, only human. And when I am in the wind, I typically default to honoring my commitments. I knew there was no lubricant in existence that would protect my nipples from the quantities of sweat that I was about to excrete, so I chose to go shirtless. And I've reached a point in my life where I really don't care what you think. If my abundantly hairy albino Clydesdale visage bothers you, then hide the children because I really don't give a... I grabbed the bug hat for the extra shade factor since I was going without a shirt. And what's a bug hat? That's a standard technical running hat that you pin a full-size bandana to the back of. The bandana hangs down like a desert Arab's turban sort of thing to cover your neck and shoulders. And when the black flies are out in August, this will keep you from getting bitten. On a hot day, it adds a layer of shade. After all this delay, I finally set out. And the dog protested that I should take him with. And I assured him that if he came, it would be the last run he ever ran. And he would be better off sitting this one out. The first five miles were easy. Piece of cake. I was a bit worried that I was going a little too fast, but the trees provided plenty of shade. The temperature was just around 80. The early morning sun was slanting in as an angle, and it was shielded by the, the leafy New England canopy, and it was really nice. But when I got to the first water drop at five and a half miles with my 24-ounce bike bottle handheld of Gatorade mix, it was empty, basically. So my sweat rate was very high, and I knew the drop bottles that I had left out were smaller. So I started working on sort of conserving water and slowing down. And my next bottle drop was going to be around 11, 11 11.5 miles. But closing in on 8 miles, even though I was rationing, I was almost out of water again. And the sun was now up and high. And there was very little shade, and there was a big hill to climb on this part of the route. And I wasn't suffering yet, but I was starting to work in some walk breaks. You know, I was dry mouth. It was heating up to over 90 now. And I was thinking about how I could find some more water, looking around for garden hoses and public parks and that sort of thing. And at the bottom of the hill, I saw a building with a hose coiled up at the back. It was some sort of store or restaurant or something. And I went back, and it was a black hose hanging in the full sun. So I turned on the water, and it came out boiling hot. I let it run, but it doesn't seem to be getting any colder. I thought it might be one of those hot water-only spigots for some sort of cleaning use. 
and I was going to give up and move on, but then it started to cool down and I was in, I was in business. I had no idea if this was potable water, but it was water. So I drank my fill and topped off my handheld. And I figured I was back on track. I had filled up. I was back on track. I'd be all set. I ventured on confident now that I had filled the shortfall in my hydration planning and that the two remaining drop bottles would get me home. So here's a hot weather running symptom that you would do well to remember. Since I had been rationing my water up until I found the hose, my stomach was empty and I was feeling the initial effects of dehydration. So dry mouth, thirst, sweating, all these normal initial stages, not going to kill you, just your body telling you you need to find some water. And when I subsequently drank a big bunch of water all at once, it didn't make these symptoms go away. Your body needs time to process the water. And if you are too far into dehydration, your body doesn't process that water well. And I realized this when I was climbing the next hill and was still thirsty, but felt that water sloshing around in my stomach. Well, your best choice is not to let your dehydration get to this point. If you can continuously take fluids, your body can keep up and you can stay ahead of it. And that's why I carry a bottle when I race, so I can continuously and consistently feed fluids into my machine. And if you find yourself in this situation, dehydrated with a sloshy stomach, don't panic. When you feel that sloshing, stop stuffing fluids in or you'll just get sick. Even though your body is telling you that it is thirsty, you have to give it time to process what it has. You've got to slow down and wait it out. You have to be patient. These symptoms are not cause for panic either. I worked the water out of my stomach by the time I got to the next drop at 11 and a half miles, but I had a long hilly haul in front of me in the full sun, really hot now. So I set out slowly running with plenty of walk breaks. Here's another tip for you. When you're taking walk breaks in the heat, you should time it so you can walk in the shade. So run the sun, walk the shade. The shade is much cooler than the full sun, and you need to minimize your exposure. I plodded on to the final water drop with five and a half miles to go, and I was totally out of water when I got to it, but thought I could manage five more miles. I was, I, I might have been able to, but it was so hot, and I was moving so slowly that I was out of water again with over two miles left to go. And this is when I started feeling the advanced stages of dehydration and heat sickness. I didn't panic, but I know the risks, so I was cautiously worried for my health. And when things start to get serious, the symptoms will change. You'll start to get woozy. And by woozy, I mean dizzy and mentally out of sorts. I got to this point with about two and a half miles to go. So I stopped in the shade and leaned against a stone wall for a couple of minutes. Then I gathered myself, and I kept going, but I was again on the lookout for some more water. I was a bit concerned because of the amount of water I had taken in without any electrolytes. This can cause a dangerous imbalance in your system. I had also been out much longer than I had planned to be out. I know the dangers, and I wished I had taken a handful of endurolites with me. I do when I go on when I race. With only a mile and a half to go to get home, I pulled into a business to beg for a refill on my handheld. And it was one of those places for kids where they climb around the ball pits and plastic tubes. I must have been quite a sight, shirtless, wild-eyed, and sweat-matted, like some crazy homeless guy. 
I was self-conscious, but I really didn't want to die. And they were mortified, but they really didn't want me to die either, especially in their building. So I got my fresh bottle, and I jogged off to finish up my 20 miles. Now, the final stages of dehydration and heat sickness that I never got to are severe dizziness, disorientation, and your core temperature goes up and your brain starts to get affected. And you may experience severe cramping in your legs. You may actually stop sweating and get sort of um, pale and clammy. You'll get involuntary chills, and you may experience extreme nausea. So my summary points are these. First, even with my experience, I should not have gone out unprepared in that heat. I probably shouldn't have gone out at all in that heat. I shouldn't have let my machismo for completing the workout override my good sense. Second, I know the symptoms, and I tried to manage my way through the workout like I wouldn't erase. Panicking never helps. So make sure you know the warning signs and how to manage them and be aware of your body and, and what you're experiencing and how to manage your workouts accordingly. And finally, don't be afraid to walk up to some stranger's door and get help. Pride isn't really worth dying for. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Well, I'll be darned. We've made it to the end of another Run Run Live. Episode 3263 is almost in your rearview mirror. I'm traveling next week, and then next weekend, June 23rd, I'm racing again up at the Bay of Fundy Marathon, and I feel good. I think that will go well if I get a good day. I need to drive up on Saturday during the daylight hours. You don't want to drive through that part of Maine this time of year at night. It's migration and mating season for the megafauna, and you just won't win a high-speed interaction between a Camry and a horny moose. I've been talking with our friend Eric and we're thinking about doing an ultra relay across the state of Missouri towards the end of October. And the plan would be to get a crew of folks and run the 250 miles across the whole state, mostly on the Katy Trail. We think it'll take about 45 hours, so we can do it over a weekend, a long weekend. Plans are still being formulated, but it would be a low overhead affair, and if you think you can run two or three half marathons in a row over three days, shoot me an email and join us. We're going to call it the Mojo Big Mo, or the Mojo Big Mo. Since I've been running these faster workouts, I had to find a better solution than the iPhone. It's just too heavy and unwieldy for listening to music and stuff. So I resurrected an old 1 meg Sansa Clip MP3 player that I had kicking around in one of my junk drawers, and it only holds a couple hundred songs, but it's super light. And I don't have to worry about wrecking it when I'm doing high these high-sweat, high-intensity runs. So I just put it in a baggie and slip it into my shorts pocket, and I'm good to go. It's very simple. The reason I bring this up is that there are millions of these cheap first-generation MP3 players out there on eBay and all those other places that you can get for five bucks and have a low overhead tunage system. So just download and install the free version of Winamp. Winamp has plugins 
to read your existing iTunes library. So it's very low overhead, easy to do. When I was talking about audiobooks from LibriVox last time, someone said that Moby Dick is a good one to get off of LibriVox. I have not, so call me Ishmael, but I have not listened to it yet. I have been listening to live-streamed Grateful Dead concerts that I found hundreds of at archive.org. They have a playlist file for each concert that you can download, and then you open the playlist file. So you're not taking the actual music files, you're just getting the playlist file. You import that into iTunes, and iTunes will stream the whole concert. And it's awesome for some of the creative work that I've been doing in the office this week. The nice folks over at the Spirit of the Marathon sent me a publicity copy of the Spirit of the Marathon 2 to review, and it was pretty good, and I'll see if I can get them on the show to chat about it. My understanding is that this movie is opening at theaters nationwide right now. You can also get the Spirit of the Marathon Part 1. That movie is on Netflix. As you can see... I've got enough to keep me busy. Things are good. I can't complain. I hope you're enjoying your summer. Unless you are on the other side of our fair planet, then I hope you are enjoying your winter. Until next time, I bid you adieu. Parting is such sweet sorrow. May the sun shine kindly on your world. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.